This morning, we're going to be looking uh, back at a couple of pieces in Genesis 2. And a couple of pieces in Genesis uh, 1. And these are things that emerged out of a conversation that Inez and I had this week. Uh, we were both sitting there in um, an office that we were able to share together uh, because of a dear friend sharing that with us. And we said, okay, we've been through a good amount of Genesis 1 and 2 over the past month and a half. Is there anything that we feel like we haven't quite touched upon that we need to go back and grab? And immediately this message came to mind. Uh, it was this idea of power, and it was this idea of creation. And what was it look like for this whole piece to come back and to be touched upon that is there granted to humanity right in the middle of that? Is, is there anything that we need to hear from this? And as I look at the beginning of Genesis chapter one, and I see all the things that God is doing, I believe that what's happening is God is entrusting God's DNA to us. God is saying, all of me, I'm now giving over to all of you. I'm making you in my image. And in the same way that I have capital L, Lordship, I'm entrusting lowercase l, Lordship, to you. And that brings power. And so what does it look like for us to be entrusted with power as God's humanity? That's the first thing we're going to touch on. We're going to really hang out there mostly this morning. But then the last piece as we land the plane, we're going to land upon this. How will humanity use that power for the good of all creation? And so as we sit with the word this morning, I want that word power to be what kind of rises up off the page. And I want you to bring your full self with that word, the word association. When you hear power, what comes to mind? And I imagine there's some funky stuff. And I hope that there's some really good and beautiful stuff. Let's look at the word this morning. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and this is where we'll start. It says, The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. This is the common English Bible. And I appreciate a few things that this translation has done. One is it takes that idea of that word, the human, because what we see after this is the separation of Adam and Eve. But up until this point in the original text is this idea of just a common humanity that God has created. I love that it tells us that God takes the human, that it's the Lord's power who takes the human, settles that one in the garden. I love that word settled. There is something of that that even just settles my soul. We have been placed, that we have been purposed. We have been put by God into this garden. And, and I want you to have all the images of that word garden, all the beautiful things that grow and emerge, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the touches, the tastes, to farm it and to take care of it. Um, we're going to wrestle with those last words here in a little bit, but I, I think this gets at the heart of what God was originally calling humanity to do. And in this moment is a commissioning, and in that commissioning is a sharing of power. So let's talk about that. But first, let's pray about that. God, we come to you this morning with our hands open to receive the power that you have entrusted to us. And I pray, God, that it would be a power that is used for good even while we acknowledge where power has been used for harm. And so this morning, God, meet us by your power. May we be open. Uh, may we be receptive. May we be conduits to Holy Spirit-sent power. And God, my prayer for this church is that we would be a power-filled, powerful church. And that maybe even after this morning, we have a clear idea of what that means. 
while we can claim that for good and not be afraid of all the ways that that could be used for bad. Lord, it's in your name that we pray and all God's people said all together, amen. The language here in Genesis 2 is that of commissioning. It says that God settled him in the garden to farm it and to take care of it. God is granting humanity a vocation. This is the work that God has called and created us to do. This idea of vocation is God's calling that goes right back to our original creation. What God first put in our hearts to do, it is God who settles and places humanity in the garden. It is God who grants us labor to do. And, and just a quick word here, and this may frustrate some folks this morning, but this is the kind of thing that makes me wonder if there will be work for us to do in heaven. Now, I know a lot of you are ready to retire. You're, you're already dreaming of the 401k and the social security and anything else that'll keep you from having to just punch a paycheck and any more. But it's this kind of moment in the original garden that makes me wonder if God first created us to do work, to cultivate, to create, could there be time in all eternity where God still says, yeah, no, the work itself is good still. And it's the kind of thing that makes me wonder if we'll each have meaningful work to do in heaven, as opposed to just sitting back in our movable recliner and having uh, hot Cheetos at a moment's notice, because that's some idea of heaven. So anyway, well, that's not the sermon for today. That's just to, you know, make you sleep at night a little bit less. So with this idea of labor, what some translations call farm or work or cultivate, there is this idea of power over the land. That word over, I think, is going to be something that we have to wrestle with this morning. God grants power to humanity, but how will we use that power for the good of all creation? And the issue arises even more as we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and pick up some of the language there that can be, for some of us, a little bit more problematic when we think about this idea of power over. It says, then God said, this is Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over. And I'm, and I'm intentionally underlining some key words here in the text. They're not underlined in your scripture or in the original Hebrew anyway. I'm just, I just want to highlight what is there so that we can come back and get it. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God did this. God created humankind in God's own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. God created. And then God blessed and said to us, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The NRSV, uh, another translation of the Bible it takes that language of rule over, and it actually translates it as have dominion. You may have heard Pastora mention that last Sunday as we were together, that God grants dominion over creation, but never dominion over one another. And that's a place where power for us has become broken. This language is rule over. This language of have dominion uh, this language of fill the earth and subdue the earth. This is all language of power that God grants this great measure of power to all humanity. And while power was originally intended for good, our use of power has become problematic. And here's what I want to clarify. So, so just go with me for a moment. 
I don't believe the problem with power is power. I believe the problem with power is our broken relationship with power. God created lowercase l lordship out of God's uppercase l lordship. It's not the power and the authority in and of itself that's wrong. It is simply how that power has been used or is currently being used. We so rarely see power used for good that we now first consider power as bad. What would it look like instead, though, for power to be reframed and not just reframed because that's too small of a vision, but redeemed? What would it look like for power to be redeemed? When I think about my three kids on the screen right now, Sam and Simone and Abe, and my relationship to them as father to children, I have been entrusted with some semblance of power in this relationship, some power to rule, some authority, some dominion. And there are days where that may not seem like the best thing in the world for those three. But is that in and of itself bad? I think about discipling relationships I've been a part of as a pastor or a youth pastor or a leader or a volunteer, or I think about working in the classroom as a school teacher and seeing the door shut as class begins and going, wait, you entrusted me with all 30 of these right now? Like who thought that was a good idea for this one person to have dominion over these 30 that they do not care whose kingdom they are under. They are going to be their own lowercase l lords right now, no matter what I say. I think these relational dynamics help us ask the question, what if power is first understood as responsibility? Responsibility to do any and everything in our power to bring about good in that relationship. I'll say it again, and forgive me if it sounds like I'm going full Spider-Man quote here, but what if power is first understood as responsibility? Responsibility to do everything in our power to bring about good in our relationships. Relationships with God, relationships with our neighbor, relationships with ourself, relationships with all of creation. We touched on this last week, the intimacy of God connecting creation. The the story of creation was first a story of connection. God's breath gives us life in our very lungs. And so there's the intimacy of God's breath to our life. There's the intimacy of the land. Adam is created out of the land, Adam to Adam Ma. So there's this connection of humanity to land. There's this connection to men and women. Ish is men, Isha, that out of man, woman is made there in the original language. God is saying, I'm connecting you with intimately to all of these things. What would it look like to go into the gardens that God has settled us into and to cultivate and care for the greater good, to use our power for that? And not just our greater good, but the garden's greater good, the relationship, the people, the place, the creation. The problem is not power. God made power to be good, and we'll get to that shortly. The problem is our broken relationship with power. Our relationship with power has brought about so much pain. Power has been used to harm, oppress, abuse, distort, destroy, 
segregate, denigrate, dominate, obliterate, eradicate, obscure, minimize, cast doubt, hold back, silence, capitalize, colonize, weaponize, paralyze, dehumanize, disempower. Power has been used for harm, y'all. We have taken that commissioning of dominion in chapter one and made a demon out of it. And we have used that power over one another in ways that sure don't look like Jesus. So should we ever then be entrusted with power? Can we handle it? It is a question worth sitting with. It's a question worth wrestling with. It is a question worth turning over and under and sideways. It is a question that is not just poignant, but is personal. And I say that not just as a cisgendered, six-foot-tall, blue-eyed, educated, white male who is married with three kids, two cars, and one dog in our culture. I've come to terms and continue to with the privilege each of those areas. The ease and the access to power afforded to me as such and all of that. Continue to learn, continue to unlearn, continue to relearn. There is power accessed just because of all of those cultural realities in the brokenness of the power afforded to us in this world. But not all of us, only some of us. And just as poignantly, I'm, I'm also hyper aware that it's not just who I am, but it's also what I do. The pastoring is a position of power. And after experiencing such brokenness over so many years in so many ways with pastors and power, why would I ever want to be a pastor? Why would anyone ever want to be a pastor, especially when we've been so turned off by and disgusted by and disgraced by abuses of pastoral power? And not just power uh, to pastors, but power in the church and not just the church at large, but like local churches, like churches you've been intimately a part of, a specific faith community where power has been used for harm. We know that churches are living organisms. They're these institutions, and they have this sense of power even over our lives. And at their best, that power has the potential to connect us to God and to one another in deeply intimate and inspired ways. That power has the potential to connect us to each other in profound and meaningful ways. Like just last week in Genesis 2, the male and the female, the ish and the isha, the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. The power in the church has the potential to even help us learn, know ourselves in ways we never could have learned on our own in isolation. It wasn't good for us to be alone. And our relationship with the church and the goodness of that resurrection power has redeemed parts of our lives that we thought were dead and gone. And churches, by the very power of the body of Christ, they tap into this greater power, but we can twist that power and in so doing cause harm in the lives of many. So is it all still worth pursuing? For many, the answer is no. That potential for power to be abused is too dangerous to get close to in any way in the first place. And so as an act of self-care, many have to remove themselves from a church community. The possibility of harm is just too painful. But for some, 
And if you're here today and you hear my voice, I think you may just be part of that sum. You're here not because you're naive to power, but because somehow, some way, by the grace and mercy of God, you still believe the power for good is greater. And that being with the people of God, that there is still a resurrection power possible in your life. We had a time of prayer on Sunday after the sermon that Inez and I preached together. And as I was praying for the men in the room uh, for this redemptive vision, um, this redemptive move of God to fall upon the men in the room, and, and Inez would pray for the women, I found myself uh, beginning to tear up as I was praying for all these dudes. And I'm not I'm not a dude that doesn't cry. Um, I'm a romantic at heart, unapologetically so, and there's just nothing I can do about it. Um, but I, I think I've experienced enough tragedy and trauma and hardship and brokenness that sometimes those tears that I'm open to just aren't opening. It's like the sky when it hovers with clouds and the rain doesn't fall. So when the tears do come, as they did on Sunday, as I was praying for the men of our church, they are always a gift to me. And I receive them as such. Uh, in fact, I'll often not wipe them off my face just because I'm so grateful that they're there. It's like a Californian um, going to stand outside when it sprinkles just a bit because we're excited that water is miraculously falling from the sky. Like kids, put on your rain boots. We are going to stand outside. We're going to hike in the rain, like whatever we need. And no, we're not bringing umbrellas. We are going to feel this water upon us. So when tears do come, I, I trust it is the power of God moving in my life. It is this sacred, deeper connection to the heartbeat of heaven that is overflowing. And so on Sundays, we're praying for the men of this church, for this redemptive power. These tears were there because I was praying for that to happen. And I began to ask this question, what would a church look like where men had a healthy relationship with God, with themselves, with other men, and just as much with women? Where men were not gatekeepers of power, but were fellow conduits of Holy Spirit-sent power that God graced all of us with, women and men. And so our job as brothers is not to hold any of our sisters back in any way or any of our other brothers, but to use all we have together to bring about all we are in and one through another with a redemptive power that could only come through Jesus. And for the women of this church, as Pastora so poignantly, powerfully prayed for, for the, for the women to walk in their God-given Ezer Kenegdo, the mighty strength of God that identifies with the character of God coursing through their veins, living in freedom to be all that God has entrusted them to be, with nothing and surely no one holding them back. What would a church like that look like? What would power like that look like? And as and I are often asked, um, in kind of church planting conversations, as we step into different contexts and we're asked to share about the unique DNA of this church. And, and maybe the, the best way that I've heard the DNA of this church shared is we were meeting with Glendar one time and she was saying, you know, I was telling one of my friends about this church and I was like, you know, it's a little weird. I'm going to be honest. 
it's a little weird. Um, we have a man and a woman leading this church together, and they're not married to each other. And let me tell you the differences about them. It's a little weird, right? But I think the power of God is in all of that. And so we're often asked about this new wineskin to come and share about that. And whenever we do, uh, we, we relish the opportunity to spark a new imagination in others. Not to copy and paste what we're doing, but that God would give them a new imagination that fits the fullness of who they are. But one thing we're almost always asked, it boils right back down to this broken understanding of power rather than a redemptive vision of power for good. Here's the question. It's great that the two of you are co-leading, but when push comes to shove, which one of you ultimately has the power to make the decision? Now, I hope you heard it. I think you probably caught it in the question. When push comes to shove, that's a question that assumes broken power dynamics, where the only way to truly work your way through conflict is through tired, old power plays where one loses and the other dominates by their dominion. When they say when push comes to shove, though, here's what I have learned to reflexively say right back. Now, listen, we're envisioning and embodying a world that need not necessitate neither pushing nor shoving. We are not playing those games. We're not naive to power dynamics. We're just aiming to tap into a greater power. The kind of shared power that God co-creates with in the divine dance of the Holy Trinity. In fact, in this church, the faces on these screens today, I want to advocate for more power in the church, not less. Power has always been intended for good. The last red letter words in my Bible come from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and it's my Jesus talking about this power. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, witnesses of the power of God upon you, power that is moved, sent, sustained by the Spirit. That's the kind of power that I want to see moving through the church. What kind of power do you believe Jesus had in mind here? What is that promised power supposed to look like? Well, maybe it's not a what, maybe it's a who. Because I believe our power is supposed to look like our Jesus. The promised power of Jesus better look a whole lot like Jesus. And so the power we possess, church, is the power to share, the power to care, the power to comfort and heal and help and listen in love. As I'm saying those words, I wonder if you can even think through Jesus' moments in those Gospels, times where you stop in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you go, oh, there's where Jesus shared. There's where he's caring. There's where he's comforting. There's where he's extending compassion. There's where he's healing. There's where he's helping. There's where he's listening. There's where he's loving. Are you with me this morning, church? What I'm saying is that the good power of God better be what the good power looks like in us. It is a redemptive power. 
It's a power of compassion. It's a power of generosity. It's a power of advocacy. It's a power of justice. It's a power to lay one's life down. It's a power to sacrifice, to give, to release. As my wife Amy says, it's a power to pour out, that God would continually be pouring the fullness of God out with no holding back, the power to cultivate, the power to tend to, the power to garden, the power to grow. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the human, settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. That is power that is used for good. That is power for growing, for reproducing, for recreating. Maybe you need to be reminded of this this morning. There is no neutrality or passivity in power. Sit with that again for just a second. There's no neutrality or passivity in power. Power is always pushing toward a pole. That's the power of it. It is always pushing toward a pole. Power either harasses and hurts and harms, or power brings health and help and hope in healing. It's going to push toward a pole. That is the power. And we as humans, we have a propensity toward power. We have a proclivity for pursuing power. We can't but help and reach for that power. But I wonder if that's not so bad. I wonder if it's because our creator made us in the image of God and that power is patterned into our DNA. And if we could just tap into the redemptive power, we would be a powerful people, a power-filled people, a spirit-filled, redemptive power kind of people, people who received power as responsibility, people who employed power for goodness. How do we know? How do we measure? Is this power good or bad? In fact, it can hold us back. It can silence us. We're so afraid to tap into bad power or to use power in an abusive way that we're, we're sometimes silenced even in of ourselves before we can ever start. And, and I have this critical key question that I think has helped me along the way. Is the power producing good fruit? Is it bearing good fruit? Is the fullness of the power that I'm bringing into this space, into this room, is it bearing good fruit? And I can't tell that even all by myself. I have to be in close, vulnerable relationships with others that can look into my life as well. That can look to the tree. That can look to the fruit. And we can together say, does this fruit, does it taste like Jesus? Does it smell like Jesus? Does it feel like the fruit of the spirit from that tree? Does it feel like the fruit of the spirit that is sending power to bring more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control? Is that the fruit of the spirit of this Holy Spirit sent power? Or is that power stealing, killing, and destroying? Because the promised power of Jesus comes to give life, not to take it. Not just any life, but abundant life, life eternal, good life. And so look around you. 
the systems, the structures, the institutions, the workplace, the church, this church hold us under the microscope if we are not bringing about the flourishing as the body of Christ by tapping into all the beauty and goodness of God's power, then we're missing something. And we need to know about that. May we look in the mirror and take the time to reflect and to reflect again and to ask a close friend where they see power coursing through our veins. Power that is being used for good, power that has been turned and twisted. As we're thinking about that true tree and that fruit, there may be places that need to be pruned in our own lives so that power can continue to grow for good. May we be courageous and vulnerable enough to ask God, where are the places where you need to prune God? So the writer of Hebrews says it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. That's that pruning language. Throw off everything that hinders. Throw off the sin, the separation from God that so easily entangles so that we may run with perseverance the race marked out for us, so that we may cultivate the gardens that God has settled us into, fixing our eyes on the great gardener, Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. I want to give space for the Spirit to speak to you, to speak to us in this. So I'm not going to provide a million application points right now for all the places that this could be. I want to entrust that to you. But one area as we land the plane here and um, sit with creation. One area just for us to sit with for just a moment. How are we using our power for the sake of God's creation? If you've seen the news this past couple of weeks, leaders from across the globe gathered for climate change conversations and commitments or lack thereof. Uh, to fight for the justice of all peoples on earth, for wealthy nations and developing nations and vulnerable nations so that sea levels don't rise and decimate whole communities so that farms and food sources aren't engulfed by insufferable heat so floods and drastic seismic shifts and unnatural disasters don't take life in unprecedented ways. How are we as a people committed to the care of creation? That language in Genesis 1 tells us that we are to have a dominion and rule over the creation. And we, again, have used that dominion and crafted a pretty fine demon out of that thing. But that's not what the original language was trying to tell us in the first place. Study of the verb of have dominion or the movement of that language is first understood in terms of caregiving, even nurturing, not exploitation. Even the command to subdue the earth is focusing on cultivation because it was a difficult task in that climate, in that culture, and in that day to actually be able to cultivate and work the land so that something good and fruitful would come out of it. So subdue the earth was not to dominate the earth, but was actually to be able to work it, to tend to it, to develop it. Why? So that it can come to its fullest possible creational 
intention. Paradise, not as some sort of perfection, not some sort of static state of affairs, but as a place where it is caring and co-creating and cultivating. And uh, we say often that leadership begins with listening and learning. And so if we have been given some leadership over creation, then maybe our first responsibility with creation is to actually listen to it and to learn from it, to humble ourselves to creation's power before us, to listen and learn from that which God created before we had breath. My wife has been reading this book um, called Braiding Sweetgrass. It is written by a native woman on the Potawatomi tribe, and her name is Robin Wall Kimmerer. The book is Braiding Sweetgrass, and, and here's what she says at the end of chapter one as she really dives into creation narratives, even in native culture. She says, in the Western tradition, there is a recognized hierarchy of things, with, of course, the human beings on top and plants are at the bottom. But in native ways of knowing, human people are often referred to as the younger brothers of creation. We say that humans have the least experience with how to live, and thus the most to learn. And so we must look to our teachers among the species for guidance. Their wisdom is apparent in the way that they live. Creation teaches us by example. They've been on the earth far longer than we have been, and they have had time to figure things out. They live both above and below the ground. They join sky world to the earth. And then hear this at the end, because this is power for good. This is the power that I'm talking about this morning. Plants know how to make food and medicine from light and water, and then they give it away. 